Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Mike, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, counting down to a slew of critical market events. Those debt ceiling talks at the White House just hours away now. The CPI tomorrow morning, a key Fed speaker literally in a matter of minutes. The Investment Committee debating the road ahead for your money. Joining me for the hour right here post nine today, Josh Brown, Jenny Harrington, Joe Terranova, everybody in the house. Let's check the markets here. Feels like we're kind of wait and see. Debt ceiling talks, as I said, and obviously the inflation uh, data tomorrow morning. So, Josh Brown, what do we think here? Regional banks lower. PacWest is down uh, a bunch. You had that loan officer survey show credit tightening. Loan demand is weakening. Austin Goolsby, vibes of a credit crunch beginning. I think we're trying to make sense of it all, but the inflation stuff is really front and center for us. Yeah, well, the Fed, this is what the Fed wants to happen. They want the availability of loans to decline. They want there to be less borrower demand. So this is like literally the whole point of doing 500 basis points worth of rate hikes, you want to produce those uh, because you think there will be a knock-on effect where prices cool off. And to some extent, you're getting your way, but you're not getting it in the labor market. And it's really, I think that is the big standout. That's the thing that everyone's waiting for to turn. Has not turned yet. Yet a little bit of a deceleration, but nothing to write home about. And it's frustrating because you look at an unemployment rate after 500 basis points in rate hikes, that's gone from 3.6 to 3.4. It's pretty rare to have a tightening cycle this severe and this prolonged where you literally just get no budge out of the headline. You're not even really getting it in terms of wage growth the way that you'd expect to see it at this magnitude. Um, the beat for April was just the icing on the cake. But then you look at things like gas at retail stations. Um, $3.49 is the national average. That's down 86 cents uh, per gallon from one year ago. Clearly, there's some impact there from rates. So, you know, if you're if you're of the mind that this is going to get worse or it's not getting better, you'll point to labor market. And if you're of the mind that, hey, we've seen the worst of this, the Fed is getting its way, we're pretty much done with the tightening cycle, you'll point to things like gasoline, durable goods demand. And that's not going to change until all of the data is moving in the same direction. And we may need to wait on that. What, what about, Jenny, the, the debt ceiling issue, which you know, it is obviously percolating. It's not sort of boiling over yet. It's not showing up necessarily in the market unless you look at the extreme short end of the, of the bond market where you've got one, three, and, and six months are all over 5%. Sort of obvious what's taking place there. Um, at what point does the market start to pay more attention? If the headlines are bad today, four o'clock is this meeting, right? President, the speaker, other congressional leaders, as well at the White House. I think the market doesn't start paying attention until we actually stop paying a bill, like what happened in 2011. Because what we've all become inured to is political theater. And I think we're kind of all expecting this to be the same. I think we know that, that this ridiculous government is so divided, they 
they bring everything to the last inning. They bring it to the you know to the end. Right. They can't just they can't just do their job and get the job done in a functional, useful way that would make all of us you know happy. It's ridiculous. Like this isn't that hard a thing to solve for. And I think that's what everyone's expecting that like they're going to get there. They're just going to torture us in the meantime. And so you don't want to put your money at risk betting on either side of that. One quick aside, I think one of the biggest investment mistakes I ever made was not buying Lockheed Martin back in 2011, you know, when when they actually um, had problems with, with negotiating the debt ceiling. And so I look at this as if we get there, we know they'll still figure it a way out and that'll be a big buying opportunity. Joe, what, what, what do you think is at play here um, between the loan officer survey, mm-hmm. the still unsettled feeling in the banks, mm-hmm debt ceiling, and then, of course, the inflation reads over the next couple of days, CPI tomorrow, PPI the following morning. I still use the word resilient. It's remarkable to me how the market is performing with all of the headwinds we have in front of us. If you look at the KBW bank index, which is 24 banks, it's got $1.2 trillion in market cap. That index is 25% below its 200-day moving average. Think about that. And that's not dragging the S&P 500 down. In the last 20 years, every other time that that index was down as significantly as it is currently, the S&P has gone down along with it. So there's clear resiliency. Um, I absolutely think the price that you pay for combating inflation has to be an economic contraction. I think we are in the middle of seeing that. It's only going to intensify in the coming quarters. You have a lot of consumers who are still relying on the uh, debt and money factors of two and three years ago and really are not aware of the waterfall that they are about to experience when they go back and they try and extend those maturity, whether it's on a car lease or a car loan. So that's all coming ahead. And I don't think we could expect, to Josh's point, on the distortions in the labor market, I don't think post-pandemic we could expect any of this to be normal because nothing's really been normal since March of 2020. Can can we break out of this range until we figure out what the the debt ceiling debate fight is going to do, where, where, where it's going to go? Are we going to be stuck in this range? Now let's assume, look, yeah. J.P. Morgan always games out the, the scenarios for, for CPI. So I'll, I'll, and I always run them down um, for all of you as well. We'll put them on the screen so you can have a look for yourself in terms of what they think the outcome is likely to be and what the market reaction may be, in fact. And there you go. Remember, the March headline CPI was 5% year on year. So they say... Um, there's only a 4% chance that it'll going to be above 5.5. Five. Obviously, it's if, if it's above that, the market reaction is going to be decidedly negative at down 3%. 50% chance of between 5 and 5.2. You get a little bit of a bump in stocks. 25% chance you go 5.355, 5.5, and you get a little bit of a, a downturn uh, as well in the market. So you're not going to get a massive reaction unless there's a total outlier, Joe um, Reed, out of CPI, which makes me think that the debt ceiling is going to be this overhang until it isn't. I would agree with that. I think when the inflation uh, figures come out, there's going to be a lot of conversation surrounding energy and the fact that gasoline was up 3% in April. That's been reversed in the month of May, so I'm not necessarily sure 
um, how much credibility there will be in this inflation report unless you see something that goes beyond what the consensus expectation. I think it takes you back to where you're thinking, which is the debt ceiling debate ultimately, Jenny, at some point is going to be a factor for the market in determining if we will be able to break out or if, in fact, we break down. I, I almost always agree with everything you say. Okay. Um, Thank you. I know. I just don't I don't see it being a market story for more than a day. I don't know. ceiling. We, one, so one rule of markets, and Joe, I know you know this too, um, one rule of markets is very hard to scare the same people with the same thing twice. Mm-hmm. There's a playbook for a debt ceiling showdown, and it's by treasuries. Right at the moment the S&P, uh, or right at the moment Standard & Poor's is cutting their rating on treasuries, in fact, by treasuries. Actually, look at yield curve right now. I'm just going to run. I think this is important. The first five durations right now in in, in Treasury bonds, yeah. uh, one month through six months, we're all yielding about 5%. That's what I said okay. not, not five minutes ago. Understood. We understand why. But as you get even like six months to a year, one year to three years, there is a huge amount of doubt that the Fed can sustain uh, where interest rates are. And that doubt is not going to all of a sudden go away. So to me, that is a bigger cushion for the stock market than the debt ceiling is a threat. So I think we could have a one or two day event. Of course, the Dow could be down a thousand points for no reason at all. So of course that could happen. But that cushion of where the market thinks rates will be mm-hmm. one year from today and beyond, I think is more important, more meaningful. Should let you also know that, you know, as of what, I don't know, two, three minutes ago, uh, New York Fed Pres John Williams is speaking at the New York Economic Club in a conversation that's being moderated by our own Sarah Eisen. So, you know, she's going to ask about all of this, we know. And if there are any headlines that come out of that, we'll be sure to bring you them, which is uh, we expected it to begin at 12.05. So we're a few minutes, we think, underway there. Go. So I think ultimately, once you get past the debt ceiling, what will happen is the mechanics of the market will force the individuals, Josh, and, and, and my remarks about the debt ceiling are, can we break out? Until you resolve the debt ceiling, it's difficult to break out. Why? Because exactly what Josh is pointing out, I'm looking at a three-month, it's 5.22 right now, okay? So that's an impediment for an individual who has moved out of risk, moved out of equities, moved out of taxable fixed income, and is now sitting in that cash-yielding short-term equivalent. That's an impediment to yeah, return to the market. Ba- what brings that so, back into stocks? In fact, if you're able to resolve the debt ceiling, I would expect that that three-month Treasury is going to be below 5%. And that at that moment, individuals realize they have reinvestment risk, and that forces them back into risk into stocks and bonds. Until you get until that moment, and I could get you know, five and a quarter percent for a three month, that's where I'm going to hide out. Yeah. Competition. When we talk about competition for stocks, which is why the risk reward for equities hasn't remained great or it hasn't improved much because there's just too much competition elsewhere, either there or in money market funds, which are, you know, at this point, yielding almost 5% themselves. And I think that's when you're talking about equities broadly, when you're thinking about equities as individual stocks and thinking of it as a stock picker's market, not just, you know, buy the KRE, buy the semi-index, buy the S&P, then the game starts to change. And so as I think through the debt ceiling, and I think about what's the difference between my comfort with this debate and my client's discomfort with it, it's because I'm looking at my individual companies. And I'm looking at Lamar Advertising and 3M and National Retail Properties. And I'm saying, okay, so let's say that we breach the debt ceiling. Let's say that we default. Let's say that the government stops paying things for a while. What does that mean to the individual companies? 
For those, it means nothing at all. Their business doesn't change at all. It doesn't change the math. So then what we're doing is we're kind of fighting this mathematical game versus a behavioral game. Right On the behavior side, it just freaks people out. You and would agree with Joe, though. You're not getting new highs in those stocks so long as this is lingering. Like you, I'm not saying you don't like the companies fundamentally. I'm just saying we're talking about a short-term event that we know well, is happening in the next 30 or so days. I mean, that's a challenging thing to say too, right? Because of my 33 stock portfolio, I've sold five major positions this year, all because they've reached new highs. I think Josh's point is if yeah. the debt ceiling gets extraordinarily messy, everything's going lower. I don't care how much you love your stock and how great fundamentally they are, whether it's deserved or not. I'm just, yes, that's Period, correct. end of story. But also you need to look at the individual companies and say there's not an actual impact here, know that the way the share prices are getting sloshed around is because of behavior, anxiety, emotion. Yeah, well, they could still go lower. Now, in terms of stock pickers market, you picked AMD. You told our viewers that you were going to buy it yesterday, at, I think at the close. Mm -hmm. You did? I did. Absolutely. I bought it yesterday. I'll stop out below 85.48, which is uh, the May 3rd, the morning after earnings. That was uh, the, the price at which it opened at. That's where I'll stop out of it. I said before, this is a trade and you're looking for trades within the market. This is, has nothing to do with a, a fundamental explanation on the business or a reflection upon earnings. This is just studying momentum, studying risk reward, mm -hmm. and trying to create some alpha in a very difficult market. By the way, I've got some headlines from Williams, I think from uh, his prepared remarks at least. Um, he doesn't say whether more interest rate increases are appropriate. Um, so maybe that's a step in the direction some are looking for rather than suggesting that, you know, they're not done uh, yet on their road. Although he does say that inflation is too high. It's going to take some time to see the full effects of rate increases. We're going to continue, uh, obviously, to monitor the comments from the New York Fed president of the New York Economic Club and whatever um, he has to say to Sarah um, over the course of the next 30 minutes or so. You wanted to highlight a couple of tech names that you feel are important uh, at this moment yeah. for what their charts are telling us. Let's do the first one, which is Alphabet. All right. So I'm long Alphabet, and it has not been a great performer over the last couple of years. It's definitely lagged some of the recoveries of other large cap tech. But I think it's at a moment of truth right now. And Patty, if you will, fire that chart I asked you for. All right, here's what we're looking at, guys. This is a stock challenging uh, overhead resistance that dates back uh, to the start of this year. It actually dates back to September of 22. You see it's about 108. That's where the stock is trading right now. Um, Google is the underperformer year to date amongst the big tech names. Microsoft's up 28%, Amazon 27%, Apple 32%, Tesla 36%, Meta and Nvidia are both up 100%. Um, this stock's only up a few percent. But that for me is the opportunity. Um, Google has seen four, keep that up, Google has seen four consecutive higher lows since its 52-week low, which was November of 2022. Last week, the stock's 50-day moving average broke above its 200-day moving average, which we call a golden cross. Uh, stock is now uh, above both the 50 and the 200, nearing its highs for 2023. And I think a convincing break above 108 is meaningful. Uh, and, and I think there's really not a lot of selling pressure above that level. It's not overbought yet. RSI is about 60 or so. 
70 would be overbought. So this is, I think, a breakout in progress. Obviously, a major adverse market event might change that. But uh, all things considered, this is the type of large cap stock and the timing that I look for as either a trade or investment. I want to point out one other thing so Jenny doesn't have a heart attack, um, which is that Google is the cheapest amongst all of those large cap tech stocks I just reeled off. Um, so if you compare it to Tesla, NVIDIA, Meta, this stock is a 24 PE. I know it's not classically cheap, but the next closest stock is Meta at 28. And all those other names are in the 30s, 40s, and 50s in terms of price earnings. So. Um, I don't know what the trigger is. I know the Pixel Fold, people are excited about the phone, they're doing a lot of the AI bundling into existing Google products right now, whatever. Like, whatever the fundamental reason is, I think this one's gonna break higher. I mean, there's been a lot of, look, Brad Gerstner was on our air a couple of weeks ago out from Milken, uh, highly critical of Alphabet, which, which he has sold, yeah, which good. he has sold on the premise that they're just missing the boat. They're ceding this leadership role and opportunity that they had on AI, and that's, you know, somebody needs to pay the price for that. And in terms of being a shareholder, he's like, well, I'm not holding the shares anymore, uh, despite whether the chart looks technically great or not. Judge, that's, the, for me, that's the, the bull case is that they, they are quote unquote seeding leadership, I'm not so sure about that. They're falling behind, um, they're being too slow, whatever, like all of those criticisms, completely valid, don't disagree with Brad. And that's the bullish part. They're under pressure now to step their game up, just like Meta was six months ago before it exploded 100% higher. Google is now under pressure. There's reporting this week that employees are sharing memes of Lord Farquhar from Shrek. Like, that, that's where this guy is at, uh, Sundar. He's got to do something. Doesn't have to be dramatic, but there's got to be an improvement that the market looks at and says, okay, they're serious about the AI opportunity and something's going to happen. And when that happens, you look back and you say, oh, why did Google break out? Well, it'll be, it'll be that. Companies don't just sit there and take all this negative feedback from shareholders and say, whatever, it'll pass. Companies react. These are, these are all great companies. And that's what we've seen with Meta. The possibility exists that we see it with Alphabet. So rarely do I agree with my younger brother from Nassau County, but he was doing great. And then he went into describing how fundamentals could lift the stock beyond his price target. You were going to say, rarely do you disagree. Rarely do I disagree. You said, rarely do you agree, I think. Yeah, I was about to fight you, bro. He's just yeah. on with Weiss. I, I like, said, rarely, rarely do I disagree. I was coming I, over there. I apologize. <laughs> Go ahead. I apologize to you. Um, stay on the technicals. Because the technicals, I agree. when you're saying What's going to allow this stock to break out? What's going to allow this stock to break out is the quant funds that have been, on, been sitting on the sidelines and not participating in this stock. The quant funds, We're the, the rules-based yeah. quant funds that sold this stock at the end of December and moved away from it, that's going to be the factor that's going to drive it forward. Because what you're doing is you're defining the technicals as the reason why. And technicals work in this marketplace. And I think there is a lot of examples right now of how technicals and the charts can guide you through a market right now that is so difficult. So we know the fundamentals. You know the fundamental story. How do you engage new buying interest into a stock? It comes from 
the quants that are overwhelmingly participating in this market getting energized. You're shaking your head. Because, because here's the thing, and this is like, I would love you to be able to sell me on this. We looked at Google for a long time. We wanted to own it. The cash flow is amazing. It's a great company. But where we, where we get stuck every time is that 90% share in search. And I don't know how they have anywhere to go but down. And well, so why is share the most important thing to you? Because not profit, how, not profits. Okay, because to maintain the profitability that they're at, I think they need to maintain their market share. And when you've got ninety percent market share, and like if that deteriorates, that's just hard to maintain the profitability and the revenues from that. So, so that's I where I. I, I don't know if I definitely. That, I get what you're saying. I just don't know if that translates into share price performance. I'm not sure, but so I struggle because from a, from a technical perspective, you make an extremely compelling case. And I want to get on board, but then I bump into it thinking they've got, they've got AI, chat GPT, everyone's coming at them. They're not going to be able to maintain that lead. You know, this is where you don't want to be the biggest dog they're, they're doing a $70 billion buyback. If tomorrow they decided, you know what, we understand that there's a tax disadvantage to doing dividends instead of buybacks, but screw it, let's do it for Jenny, see if we can get her in the stock. And they took that $70 billion and paid it out as yield. Would you be looking at the stock? I mean, look, it, I know that's too hypothetical to be serious about, so it would always Mom, be I'm trying our, to trap you. Okay, <laughs> dividend. But, but it, would always be, it would always be in our discipline growth strategy. Okay. And so you need to have a really high and sustainable free so what, cash. All right, so what, do you want, so what do you want, what would, what... You need a clear... You need them to lose market share and then want to gain it back? No, or you need what to do you see need? a clear path to sustainable earnings growth, and I don't... This is the king of sustainable earnings growth. But that's what I worry about. But, but it, it already is about. that thing that you're saying you want. It has been. It's already been. I don't see it's how It's one of the most profitable companies in American history. Right. Struggling over the last year. Stock has not done anything. Like, right. th this is when you look at a stock like this. And I suspect that there were plenty of people who were well ahead of us who didn't buy it, you know, or sold it, saying, hey, they're eventually going to lose their lead. Couldn't you have said the same exact things Meta. about Meta? And you, yet you own that. I'm, I'm so confused, the kind of argument you're making think, now. One could yeah. have made to you a year ago. So in or is their market, in where's their market share going in, in the land of TikTok? Is so, it going up or down? I mean, uh, my argument there was that there was significant market share still to gain, you know, and that, and that that revenue stream was dramatically underappreciated when it was trading at 15 times back in November. So this is still, a, this is still as you said, it's not cheap, it's not expensive. I guess what I'm asking is, is I Facebook moving see, on market share? I, I don't think so. I think the argument that people were making against Meta back then was, Oh, and you made this argument at one point, which is like, oh, it's soccer moms. It's not popular. But then you would look outside of the U.S., and I would look at the data outside of the U.S. and see that, like, in, in Southeast Asia, the numbers were unbelievable. And it was huge in the 18 to 35 camp. And they had Insta. But, like, I didn't see dramatic competitive pressure for Facebook leaving TikTok out because that's one area. I didn't see dramatic competitive pressure coming in on Facebook last year where I see that is, is potentially happening with Google now. All of Facebook's growth is Instagram, and that is one of the most dramatic stories of, of pressure Facebook's, from a competitor. All of Facebook's growth in the U.S. is Instagram. Right. Overseas, Facebook's still growing. I know, Collectively, I don't see significant 
competitive pressure for, for Meta the way I see it for Google. Let me ask That's you this. Um, you also wanted to talk about Oracle, which, well, which so, you also own. Right. Are we in the same sort of technical breakout with this chart? Yeah, so this, so this, is, well, this, this is a breakout that's already, that's already kind of happened and now looks like you could have another breakout. It, this is a function of how far back you want to pull the chart. But we talked about Oracle 89, 90, 91, um, about to break resistance. It did. Oracle's actually a late reporter, um, so you're not going to see earnings until later on in May. Most of the other big tech companies have already reported. I have no edge in terms of like, will the earnings be good or bad? But my, my tendency is to believe that most surprises take place in the same direction as the stock price. Very rare you can have an uptrend like this, and then the, the earnings results completely negate that. And the reason I believe that is because I think the markets overall are pretty smart. So this is a breakout in progress. She looks like she wants 100. It's a level uh, we haven't seen since late 2021. Not a lot of overhead resistance. Really nice pattern of higher lows, higher highs, and this is a story where the fundamental improvement of the company moving into the cloud, taking market share like crazy, um, is aligned with what's happening with the technicals. And I think this is what a lot of investors look for. All right, uh, let's do this. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to highlight our chart of the day. It's a semi-stock pulling back after a weaker than expected guidance. We'll get the take on what it means for not only that name, but maybe some of the other chips as well. We'll take a look at some of the other stock movers on earnings as well. We're back in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit ODFL.com to learn more. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Let's do our chart of the day. It's Skyworks. The stock's lower after its guidance came in well below expectations. Jenny, you own this one, uh, and they were way below uh, the estimate of what the street was looking for. Right. So we added this a few months ago, and we were early, which means wrong with our timing. We knew that they were in a bottoming process, and we thought that the shares had bottomed. With respect to our long-term thesis, we're still completely comfortable that the long-term thesis is, is intact here. In fact, last night, they went out and said... Per household in the U.S., there are 10 connected devices, and these guys make chips that connect to the Internet. The, the presumption is that by 2025, there will be 75 billion devices globally um, that are connected to the Internet. And so this is where Skyworks benefits. So where are you today? Would we buy today? Absolutely. Where you are today is you've got an 11% free cash flow yield. You've got 17% earnings growth expected next year. 
uh, sorry, 12% next year, 17% the following year. And you've got a company that's completely essential to everything we do, everything we use. We were early. It doesn't mean it's a bad company. It's just a tricky cycle. Why is it so cheap? Why is it 10 times earnings? I don't know. Yeah. Is it like it's so cyclical that it just, yeah. they don't give it much credit at the trough? I think so. Okay. It's 20% off of its 52-week uh, high. They are a customer of Apple. Mm-hmm. Um, so frankly, you know, after Apple reported, and I saw that Skyworks was reporting yesterday, I was like, all right, this is probably going to be decent because Apple was decent <laughs> and their iPhone numbers were better than the street had expected. So is it hard to make a compelling case for the stock in light of that? I don't think so, actually. In fact, a lot of the weakness came from Android, and we were really surprised that it traded down today because after Qualcomm, we thought at that point the shares had really incorporated the downside. I don't think it's hard. I just think it's one of those stocks that takes patience, you know, and and the investor base needs to change, and people need to understand that you know, that there's earnings growth ahead. But it's not flashy. Joe? It was removed, sold out of the ETF in July of 2021. We owned it upon inception. It's a company with a great balance sheet, but it's a company that ran into the challenges really related to China reopening. And there is clearly uh, a lot of, I used the word friction yesterday, but it's been an uneven opening for China. There's excess inventory that was reported with uh, this earnings. And it's clear that Android is is a challenge. Um, I think what the positive take on this stock could be is the price performance today is pretty good. The low of the day was 92. It's up near uh, 100 right now. So it's coming back rather strong as people realize the valuation. But there are cyclical challenges still in front of Skyworks. I think they have to address the issues as it relates to Android. And they need a much stronger trend to develop in the China reopening. So, Jenny, what about, um, I know Western Dig is, is also down today, and you don't own that, but you do own Seagate. Right. So we're talking apples to apples somewhat if we, if we discuss those. Let's right. throw up Seagate uh, as well, if we could, please. So this is the third time that I've owned Seagate. And when you buy these kinds of companies, you need to just know that they're cyclical and you're not gonna be in them for 10 years, right? They're not 10 year plays, maybe they're two, three year plays, but you may not nail the bottom, but we also know that they move so quickly that you just have to be there. So when we bought Seagate several months ago, it was at 56, it had a 5% dividend yield. Whereas it today, it's at 56, it has a 5% dividend yield. And it's been interesting because to Joe's point about the bottoming process happening, I'm comfortable waiting that out. Now I like to be in at the very bottom and wait the very bottom out, which has happened in Seagate, hasn't happened um, in Skyworks. Skyworks, by the way, is in our growth portfolio, um, whereas Seagate's got the dividend, so for that portfolio. But when you have that dividend yield, it gives you the time to wait something out. So, you know, it's just a process. All of these companies make chips and products and memory that we need. We can't live without it. Yeah, but they go through cycles. Yeah. If, if, that, if that was just a blanket enough comment, then the stocks would go up forever. They don't. For sure. But that's why I bought Seagate when it was down 50%. Josh, quickly you. Uh, PayPal's down a lot, too, today. Um, You don't own it. You used to. I'm wondering what your read is on this. Yeah, I have lost all the money that I'm ever going to lose in my life in PayPal. So I wouldn't even consider it today. Look, I don't think it's a terrible company. I think the problem is they had this massive surge in adoption during the pandemic, and then they had to lap those numbers, and that was never going to happen. And you combine that with how wrong I was, the valuation I originally bought it. I didn't buy the high, obviously, but this is a $300 stock that ended up going to like 50. Um, So it's just been a miserable ride. And it's not as though the company's not growing. It's just not growing enough to meet the expectations of the people that bought it four times higher than where the price is today. All right, so what matters going forward? Well, 
go to a website, try to buy something, and tell me if you don't see an Apple Pay uh, symbol there, because you probably do. And that was PayPal's bread and butter. So you could talk about Venmo till the cows come home, and the bulls will. Venmo doesn't make them a lot of money. It's a great service. It's very useful. I use it all the time. Um, but the, the bread and butter business of e-commerce transactions is going to move away from PayPal and continue to move toward the Apple Pays of the world. And then you've got you know ShopPay, Shopify service. So it's just a really, really, really hard business. And that's why the stock is where it is. And again, through no fault of their own, this is just the reality. Apple makes the device. Apple has the operating system. Apple has the scale. They can go to everyone and build their pay button into every site imaginable, and the users absolutely love using Apple Wallet. So that's where we are. All right, up next, we, uh, we're going to do some of the biggest analyst calls on the street today. But first, a message from Notori Company President Ken Notori as CNBC celebrates Asian American and Pacific Islander heritage. We're incredibly proud to be celebrating our 46th anniversary as an Asian-founded and led independent family business. One of the reasons we've had so much staying power over the years is because we have celebrated and broadcast our Asian roots. It permeates everything we do, from our East meets West design aesthetic, to our core values, to even our supply chain. One of our differentiating factors is that we have a family-owned factory in the Philippines where we manufacture the majority of our in-house collections. The fashion business has never been easy, but we're going to stay authentic to who we are, and we hope our message will continue to resonate with our customers. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Contessa Brewer. Here's our CNBC News update this hour. FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried wants the criminal charges against him dismissed. Yesterday, Bankman-Fried filed documents insisting prosecutors improperly made federal crimes out of civil and regulatory issues caused by the collapse of cryptocurrency markets. In December, prosecutors said Bankman-Fried cheated investors to make lavish real estate purchases, among other allegations. Goldman Sachs will pay $215 million to settle a years-long discrimination lawsuit. That settlement covers about 2,800 women who work across multiple Goldman Sachs divisions. The lawsuit was filed in September 2010 and was set to go to trial next month. 
And the Senate Judiciary Committee asked Texas billionaire Harlan Crow for a list of the gifts he's made to U.S. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. About a week ago, the Democratic-led Senate panel explored the possibility of imposing ethics standards on the Supreme Court. Republican members on the panel opposed that potential legislation. Scott? Contessa, thank you. Contessa Brewer. Let's do our calls of the day now. First, Conoco Phillips named a top pick for the second half of the year, Goldman Sachs. They call for a more than 20% upside. Joe, you own it in the Joe T. Amongst the bunch of other names, I highlighted it yesterday as a name to own. It also has a little bit of a refining capacity, which gives you a, a diversification in the energy production model. Um, it's Listen, it's a name that has pulled back since the fall, but it's a name that I believe you stay with. Reasonable valuation, a company that's seeing the profitability at historically high levels, and it's a company that that uh, I think of viewers, if you don't own it, should take a look at. Uh, down 14% year to date. Um, it's 19% in six months, 27% off its 52 week high. Uh, oil is, you know, 72. Why here? Why now? Well, I think. You know, the time frames that you're citing, I said in my initial remarks, mm-hmm. the stock is off its lows from October. Um, you want to pull back the lens and go all the way back to. I mean, it's only you know, up 4% over the last year. Okay. But Scott, this is a stock that was $20 in 2020. Okay. Um, it's had a remarkable run, which has correlated to a reversal, a significant reversal in the incentive to increase production. It's a well-managed company, and it's a diversified company, and it's a diversified energy company. And I think those types of companies are the companies you want to own when you're experiencing some of the volatility that you're experiencing in the spot price of oil. So the price of oil doesn't matter to the no. price of this stock? No. The business is diversified enough. Okay. Over one-year time frames, there is no correlation between oil prices and oil stock prices. Joe is correct. All right. You own some of these names, not this one specifically, Jenny, but you got a lot of, of, of exposure in the space. So Josh said something really interesting about PayPal, which is, I think, true for the energy space, too. He said there's, there, they didn't put out earnings that were good enough to meet expectations of the people who had bought it four times higher. And I think that there was a big rush into the energy stocks last year because people followed that like big plus 50% year in 2021, the plus 50% year in 2022. And now when these companies are doing exactly what they should, which is minting cash, buying back shares, paying out big dividends, creating reasonable earnings growth, not huge. Now there's just a shareholder base turnover, right? But if you get in now, there's probably a lot of money to be made. You're not going to have 50%, but you might have 10 or 12%, some combination of capital appreciation and dividend income. I mean, energy is the worst sector in the It goes, in and, it goes in and out of favor. And I know there are people that sell their ability uh, that they can like time sectors perfectly and they're only going to buy the three leading sectors and they get out of the three laggard sectors and they can do that on a, on a reliable basis. I know you can't do that, but there are people that will believe them. Um, I don't think that that's necessary here. I completely agree with Jenny. Uh, it's out of favor. So if you don't have exposure here, mm-hmm. they'll come back in favor. That's not one you want to buy. So I, I would be looking at this, the, the, the stocks that make up this group. And they're not all straight up buys. And they're not all necessarily done going lower. But so what? That's, it, there's risk involved. What about, what about Joe Ingersoll, which was upgraded today at Evercore to outperform 
Price targets a 20% upside from here at 71 bucks. You own this in the Joe T as well. We do. Trades at 30 times. Jenny, it's got $2.2 billion in cash, which I think you'd like. Organic revenue is about 30%. Uh, significantly outperformed the S&P over the last year. It's up 29%. Again, a very diversified business. Um, and it is an industrial that's been well-managed in understanding how important it is to be diversified in the industrial sector. So um, it's a name that has been uh, with us since July, I believe, of last year. We got in somewhere around 50 bucks. Uh, I don't know where the chart is, 59 right now. Um, strong balance sheet. All right, straight ahead, CNBC's annual Disruptor 50 list is out, highlighting companies chasing some of the biggest market opportunities. Julia Borston joins us next with how you can invest in some of those big ideas. We're back on the half right after this. We're back. CNBC's annual Disruptor 50 list is out. And while you might not be able to invest directly in these game-changing companies, you can invest in some of the groundbreaking innovations through the public markets. Our Julia Borston has your disruptive technology playbook from San Francisco, of course. Julia? Well, Scott, the Disruptor 50 ranking of the fastest-growing startups reveals key trends that are not just driving startups, but are also impacting the public giants and sometimes drawing their investments. With OpenAI number one on this year's list, Microsoft, which invested some $13 billion into the company, is a key way to play OpenAI's rise. As to the broader AI trend, 21 of this year's companies say AI is critically important to over half of their revenue. NVIDIA, the chipmaker, is poised to continue to benefit from the growth of AI. Another key trend, cybersecurity, with three cyber companies on the list, Wiz, SNCC, and Arctic Wolf. Investors can look to Palo Alto Network, seen as one disruptors are chasing, as well as CrowdStrike and Sentinel One, past disruptors in the space now public. Plus, there are two public giants invested directly in these cybersecurity disruptors. ServiceNow is an investor in SNCC, and Salesforce is a backer of SNCC, as well as Wiz. In fact, Salesforce is an investor in eight Disruptor 50 companies this year, ranging from green energy company Block Power to payments company Stripe and upskilling company Guild. And though there hasn't been an IPO of a Disruptor 50 company in over a year, when the IPO market does open up, we can expect some of these more mature disruptors, such as Chime, to IPO. I just spoke to Chime CEO. He told me that they do have plans to go public eventually, but he said the IPO market seems closed for the foreseeable future. Make sure to turn into power, tune into PowerLent at 2.30. I'm going to be sitting down with the CEO of an electronic autonomous tractor company, Monarch Tractor, with that CEO live from a vineyard. Scott? All right. Julia, appreciate it very much. That's Julia Borson, the Disruptor 50. Uh, the annual list is out. All right. Coming up next, we're going to trade some more stocks. We've got about 15 minutes to go in uh, our show today. The Dow is still down about 72. John Williams is still speaking. We're back after this. All 
Worldwide, Senior Markets Commentator Mike Santoli is here uh, for his midday word. All right, we're waiting around, obviously, for, you know, let's see what happens with this meeting at the White House. Let's see what happens with inflation. But Sarah, you know, our colleague is talking to John Williams, the New York Fed president right now, about the interest rate outlook. I want to listen to what he said moments ago, and we can uh, react on the other side. There's John Williams. I don't, in my forecast, we need to keep a restrictive stance of policy in, in, in place for quite some time to make sure we really bring inflation down from the you know, over 4% it is now all the way to 2 So I do not see in my baseline forecast any reason to cut interest rates this year. Um, and I will say that, you know, at some point in the further out in the future, of course, if my forecast comes true uh, and inflation is moving back to 2% and the economy is performing, you know, as expected, then, of course, at some point, we do need to move interest rates back to more normal levels. But again, reiterated, I don't see that happening this year. Yeah. So trying to throw a little cold water on the market's idea that there's going to be cuts this year. Right. And also speaking as he has to, as they all have to, of saying we're not declaring that we're in a pause right now. Right. So right. the way I view that is a lot of uh, this is stress testing the market with a headline that in theory could be taken as a real negative, but really is, is probably uh, kind of to be expected. So I, I agree that they're never going to endorse cuts down the road. I think to me the debate, as we were talking about last night, is not so much is the bond market right, is the Fed right about what happens down the road, because neither one quite knows, is is the stock market priced on the premise that we're getting cuts? And I would say probably not. I think it's premised on the idea that we're basically done with hikes, and then we see what happens and see how soft or hard uh, the landing is. I think it's very similar with the debt ceiling. Everyone's waiting for the other guy to panic, right? Even though people know there's no real reason to panic, it's only going to be a scare, but sometimes we need the scare to happen. Uh, and so you, let's wait for that. Do you agree with what Josh put forth earlier that, you know, if it get, even if it gets messy, it's a one or two day, not a major Probably. event um, and, and like, like, like we've seen know, in the past. Oh, we missed, you know, we, we, we sort of had to delay uh, a few payments or TBO payments. So probably it is that. But, you know, that's when accidents happen. And I think you can sort of, uh, you know, be agnostic about exactly whether the market should overshoot to the downside on something like that. But, you know, sometimes it does. And you know what? It, it, this sort of fight or debate or whatever doesn't um, happen typically in an environment that's already experiencing tightening of credit right. conditions. We're, we're in a different world than we were in well, the last moment. Here's, here's the thing about that. I would say yes in, the, in terms of the specific circumstances, but you have to put your mind back to where we were in 2011. People had such PTSD about the, the global financial crisis. We thought we were right back in it. It was going to be a double-dip recession, and the Fed didn't have control of anything. And Europe was melting down. Everything was happening at once, exactly. So it always seems like you know, too much is going on for us to handle this adversity. So, uh, you know, not to say that there's not adversity, but, you know, hindsight makes it feel like it was a cleaner story back then than it was. Yeah, I, that's a good point you make. Uh, we'll talk more uh, closing belts. Mike Santoli, Final Trades are next. Hope you join me 3 o'clock Eastern today. Closing bell, Courtney Garcia, John Mowry. Marco Cada will be with us as we take a look at the markets. We'll look ahead, too, to that critical White House meeting today at 4 p.m., which happens just as overtime uh, gets going. Got some earnings we need to walk you up to and talk about as well. By the way, before we do final trades, we also want to congratulate our friend Shannon Sakosha on her new job. 
She's going to be CIO of Newberger Berman Private Wealth. That was just announced today. We are so thrilled Yay. with Shan, formerly of uh, obviously SVB, uh, caught up in that whole thing. But we're so happy that she is about to start that great new job. And we hope she's back with us uh, before we know it. And, Her uh, agent and all will of you. Be in touch. I hope so. <laughs> so, congrats, Shan. We've been thinking about you, and uh, we're so happy uh, to hear this great news. All right, let's do final trades. Joey. CRISPR Therapeutics, and again, it is based off of technicals, strong earnings report. Take a look at that chart. Breaking out, stock right now at 62.40. You could buy this stock with a stop, uh, stop below 55. All right, Jenny. Devon Energy had a great quarter last night. They have about a 5% dividend yield all in this year, and they announced a 50% increase to their share buyback authorization. All right, Josh Brown. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway is a longtime shareholder. I came away from the meeting this weekend feeling very good about the succession, and Greg and Ajit and Todd and Ted, and I feel like they did it right. All right. Um, you've had that stock for a, for a good while now, I'll right? I'll never sell it. All right. Well, that's Josh Brown there on Berkshire Hathaway. All right. I'll see all of you on Closing Bell, uh, 3 o'clock Eastern time. Does it for us. The exchange begins now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report Disclaimer. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.